Good morning. Oh, you all sound happy. Um, <laughs> uh, can I just add my welcome to you? Um, especially if you're new, it's great to have you with us. Uh, this morning, we are starting just a three-week uh, mini-series on the glory of God. Um, next week, Kaz is going to come and preach to us about how uh, God's glory uh, transforms us. Uh, and the week after that, Joel, is, who was joining this morning, Joel is going to come and preach to us for uh, his first time um, on how the church, how God's people display the glory of God. Um, this morning, I have the job of kind of providing something of an introduction. Um, before we start, though, I just want to touch briefly on what we mean by the glory of God, because it's often said that glory is one of the hardest Christian words to define. Right? The Bible uses it as an adjective. God is glorious. As a noun, God reveals his glory. Uh, and as a verb, God is to be glorified. Um, and the Hebrew word that um, is translated as glory comes from a root which means heaviness, like weight, something that's weighty. Um, and it can, it can mean honorable, it can mean exalted, revered. Um, the Greek word in the New Testament that's translated as glory has a similar kind of feel. It can mean praise or repute or fame. Um, but God's glory is what he essentially is and does as shown in whatever way he reveals himself. Um, still quite complicated. Theologian C. John Collins basically said that um, the word glory became a term for God's manifest presence, right? His displaying or his shining out of his person, his presence and his works. And I think that's quite helpful just to keep in mind as we go through this series is that a very basic understanding, simple understanding of the glory of God is that it is his presence. So now that I've wonderfully cleared that up for all of you, um, what I want to do this morning is a bit different to normal. So I'm not really going to preach through a passage and give a few points and my reflections. Uh, what I want to do instead is try, <laughs> uh, emphasis on that word, try and tell a bit of the story of the glory of God through the Bible. Um, I have no idea how it will go. I've been stressing about it all week. Um, so have grace for me if it is terribly dull. Um, <laughs> and I'm, we're not going to put scriptures or anything up on the screen either because um, there's going to be quite a few of them. We're going to be jumping around a fair bit. Um, but if you're at all familiar with the Bible, um, you'll hopefully recognize some stories as we go. So let me just pray and then I'll crack on. Father, we come this morning desiring an encounter with your glory. Lord, that is what we long for. God, so as we just take a few minutes just looking at the scriptures, Father, I just pray, would you reveal your glory to us? God, would you stop us from navel-gazing and would you lift our eyes to behold your glory? God, so that we may be transformed and that you may be glorified. Amen. Amen. So, our story, as you'd expect, starts in the beginning, where God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. 
And God said, and it was, and he saw that it was good. God makes the day and the night, the heavens, the land, the sea, the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants and the trees, the fish, the birds, the livestock, all the creatures of the earth, the first five days. And why does our story start there? Because the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And because of day six, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, to be his glory bearers. And let them rule over the fish and the birds, over the livestock and the creatures that crawl along the ground, over all the earth. So God forms the man from the dust of the ground and he breathes life into him. And God makes an ally for the man by taking one of his ribs and forming the woman. He creates them in his image, male and female. And he says to them, you can eat from any tree in this garden apart from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat of it, you'll die. And he blesses the man and the woman and he tells them to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and rule over it, to bear his glory to all creation. And David writes in Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Yet you have crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. The sixth day. And by the seventh day, God had finished his work. And so he rested. And God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. So we have creation declaring the glory of God. Man and woman crowned with glory, made in God's image to bear his glory to all the earth. And they live in the garden with unrestricted access to God's presence, to his glory. God dwells with the man and the woman in the garden. But most of us know the next chapter in this story. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? And the woman said to the serpent, no, no, God said we may eat from the trees, but he did say we can't eat from one tree, and we can't touch it, lest we die. Die? You won't die, said the serpent to the woman. God just knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, was pleasing to the eye, and was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, just like the serpent said. But what happens next is not what the serpent promised. 
Because the sad reality is that they were already like God. They'd been made in his image, given a task reflecting him, to create, to bring forth life, to rule over creation, to bear his glory to all the earth. And instead, what happens is that they realize their nakedness and now their sin and they feel shame before the glorious presence of the one who made them. So they sew fig leaves together and they cover themselves. And they hear God walking in the garden and they hide from him. And God calls to them, where are you? And the man answers, I heard you coming and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God says, who told you that? Did you eat from the tree? I told you not to eat from. And the man said, the woman, the woman that you put here with me, she made me do it. And God said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me, it's his fault. So God curses the serpent. But he promises a day when the head of the serpent will be crushed by the offspring of the woman. And God tells the man and the woman how their God-given tasks have now been corrupted. They'll now bring forth life only out of pain. Where previously they were to rule over the fish and the birds, the livestock and all the other creatures, they now desire to rule over one another. Where they could eat from any tree in the garden, now they can only eat through painful toil. And the consequence that God gave right at the beginning. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Death. So sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. In this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, his glory have been clearly seen, being understood from all that he has made so that people are without excuse. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But claiming wisdom, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image. For all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All have forfeited the privilege of bearing his glory. And God makes garments of skin for them and he clothes them. And God banishes them from his garden, banishes them from his presence from his glory the man and the woman's access to God's presence is now restricted by cherubim angelic creatures that God places at the entrance to the garden all looks lost but God still gives his people glimpses of his glory many years later God's people Israel they've multiplied but they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And God chooses a man named Moses to lead his people out of slavery. 
And he gives a glimpse of his glory to Moses through the burning bush that is not consumed. And how does Moses respond? By hiding. Just like the man and the woman in the garden because he was afraid. But God still continues to give glimpses of his glory to his people as he sends the plagues upon Egypt, as he leads Israel out of slavery by a pillar of cloud and fire, as he leads them through the Red Sea on dry ground with a wall of water to their left and their right. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, when they saw his glory, the people feared the Lord and they put their trust in him. And they sing together, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And God leads his people to Mount Sinai, where he makes a covenant with them and gives yet another glimpse of his glory. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain. And he stayed there 40 days and 40 nights. And God gives Moses instructions for his people to make a dwelling place for his glory, a tabernacle, a tent. And Moses says to God, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you haven't told me who you'll send with me. You've been telling me, I know you by name and you found favor with me. So if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence, my glory will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if you don't go with us, don't send us away from here. How will anyone know you're pleased with us if you don't come with us? (laughs) What else will distinguish us from all the rest of the people on the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Moses had seen glimpses, but that is all they had been, just glimpses, not a complete vision. And Moses wants more. He desires an unrestricted encounter with the glory of God. God replies to him, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes you by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by you. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. 
So the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands to the thousandth generation, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses' response this time, he bowed down at once and he worshipped. Moses gets a fuller vision of God's glory than anyone else at this point in history, save the man and the woman in the garden before the fall. And yet he can still only see God's back. He must be hidden in a rock and covered by the hand of God so that he doesn't die. The access is still restricted. And as Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is shining. A bit like mine. I'm warm up here. Um, (laughs) Shining so much, in fact, that the Israelites are afraid to come near him. And he has to cover his face with a veil. A hint, maybe, that God is going to one day restore his task to the man and woman of bearing his glory to all creation. So the Israelites, they build the tabernacle, the tent, just as God instructed, and God's glory comes to dwell. And later, the temple, a more permanent residence for the uh, the glory of God. But in both the tabernacle and the temple, the glory of God, his presence is separated from the Israelites by a curtain covered in cherubim. The same angelic creatures that separated the man and the woman in the garden. And as the story continues, God continues to give glimpses of his glory, most often now to his prophets. And one glimpse he gives to a prophet named Isaiah, who sees a vision and he says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their eyes, with two they covered their feet and with two they flew. They were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. What's Isaiah's response to this vision? Well, he thinks he's going to (laughs) die. Woe is me, he says, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But thankfully, God also gives his prophets promises of a coming Savior, a coming Messiah, who would one day usher in a new creation where guilt will have been taken away, and sin atoned for, where the serpent will finally have been crushed, where death will be swallowed up 
forever, where the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory, and where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And 400 years after the last prophet in the Old Testament, that promised Messiah comes in the form of a baby. And John, in his gospel, writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that word became flesh and made his dwelling, pitched his tent, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. This baby is the Word, the creator of all things made flesh. This sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, the fullness of God's glory in human form. And as Jesus grows, he performs many signs and wonders and miracles that reveal his glory to those around him. There's even a mountaintop moment just like Moses where a cloud descends and Jesus is transfigured before his disciples before those around him so that his face is shining as the sun and his clothes become white as light and as he reaches the time of his death he travels up to Jerusalem where the temple was built and a short time later hours minutes maybe before his arrest, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent I pray also for those who will believe in me, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and 
to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, came forward and he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I am he, Jesus said. I am the name of God. And when Jesus said this, they drew back and they fell to the ground. But Jesus is still arrested and eventually sentenced to be crucified. He's flogged. A crown of thorns placed on his head. He's mocked, he's slapped, he's spat upon. And carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And we see a vision of the Lord high and lifted up, just like Isaiah. But this time on a wooden cross. And from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And Jesus cries out in a loud voice, and he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple, that restriction from God's presence with the cherubim all over it, is torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, just like in Isaiah's vision. The rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many saints who had died were raised to life and they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and they appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified, just like the man and the woman in the garden after they'd sinned, just like Moses at the burning bush, just like the Israelites after seeing God lead them out of slavery, just like Isaiah, seeing a vision of the Lord, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, truly, truly this was the Son of God. It's at the cross that we see the ultimate display of God's Glorious at the point that Jesus looks most bruised and bloody and beaten, that we see his beauty. The God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. And the writer to the Hebrews using Psalm 8 that we read at the beginning, he says, We see. Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for all of us. 
but it doesn't end there, thank goodness. God raises Christ Jesus from the dead. And as Peter says to the onlookers at the start of Acts, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to let him go. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. You killed the author of life, but God has raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. It's through Jesus' life and death and resurrection that he has made it possible for us to encounter the glory of God again. Unrestricted access to his presence. And how is that unrestricted access shown? Through the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites couldn't gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, even though it was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we come to Jesus the living stone, we also, like living stones, are being built into a temple of the Spirit. In Christ, we have become the dwelling place of God's glory, of his presence. In Christ, our task to bear his glory to all the earth is finally restored. But the story doesn't end there either. (laughs) As God promised those prophets, Many years ago, there's still a day to come when Christ will return in glory and in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. Then the saying that's written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. A day is coming when all creation will see the glory of God. And those not in Christ will cry with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am ruined. But those hidden with Christ in God will appear with him in glory and will see him face to face, and God will be all in all. And John describes this day in the book of Revelation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more nights. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So what does this mean for us today? How I want us to respond this morning? How do we encounter afresh the glory of God this morning? One way, very simply, is through communion. So that's what we're going to share in a few minutes. Jack and the band, if you're happy just to come up and play quietly for a bit. Um, There is so much to this simple meal of bread and grape juice, and we so often undervalue it and underplay its significance and its power. Right? Communion speaks of so many different things, from the exodus and Israel's rescue from slavery to Egypt and our rescue from slavery to sin, to the day that we just read about, where we will drink wine with Jesus face-to-face at the great wedding banquet. But it does more than just speak as well. It actually acts, and it acts powerfully, It announces to the principalities and powers that Jesus is Lord and that on the cross, he has won the victory over all evil and has crushed the head of the serpent. And it brings a common unity brought together with Christ as part of his body. We are built up into that spiritual temple. But the thing that I want us to focus on today as we share communion is that it's also the place we encounter the presence of Jesus. For the first 1,500 years of the church, communion, the Eucharist, the Mass, the Lord's Supper, whatever you call it, and opening the Scriptures were the primary way that God's people were encouraged to encounter his presence. And it wasn't until a guy named Ulrich Zwingli about 500 years ago essentially said that communion is just a symbol that parts of the church began to devalue it. But for most of Christian history, and for the majority of the church still today, we encounter, they believe that we encounter the real presence of Jesus in communion. And of course, there are disagreements about how we encounter his presence. But we believe that the Bible teaches Christ is truly present in this little bit of bread and grape juice by his spirit. The spirit is mysteriously at work So that when we participate in this meal, we participate in the body and the blood of Christ. Jesus is presented to us in this meal. He is not just represented by it. We are encountering the presence, the glory of God as we share bread 
and grape juice together. It's why Paul says that if we take it in an unworthy manner, we drink judgment on ourselves. It's why he tells the Corinthians that many of them have fallen weak or ill or have even died. As we take the bread and the grape juice, we are sharing in the body and blood of Jesus, sharing in his presence, sharing in his glory. So can I invite you just to stand if you're able, if you're comfortable too. There are four tables around the room with bread and grape juice on them. I'm just going to finish by reading a short uh, doxology word of praise from the book of Jude. Um, And then please go and grab some bread and some grape juice. um, And let's just reflect on the glory of God as displayed in Jesus as we take it. You can take it on your own, take it with others. Whatever you want to do this morning is fine. But let's just remember and consider the weight of what we are doing and the significance of this small meal as we do it. We are encountering the very presence of Jesus in this bread and wine, grape juice. And then after a few minutes, Jack and the band will um, just lead us into a time of singing. But just before I read this short um, word of praise, let's just take a moment, just as quiet as we can, and let's just lift our eyes, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, lift our eyes to behold God's glory. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and power and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Please do go and grab some grape juice and some bread, um, and the band will just play for a few minutes.